Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's Thursday, December 7th, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. We had an excellent live event at the Village Underground where I gave a briefing about Israel. You may have noticed I've been doing a lot of Israel coverage. You know, general focus of the show. I seek out what's newsworthy, but certain items in the news sometimes really capture my attention. It's definitely been Israel. I think there has been a lot of interesting and horrible goings-ons and a lot of interesting and horrible statements. I've always thought my job was to get in there and bring you the information you might not have known or a new way to think about information that you might see elsewhere. Now, sometimes the stories that I see and the stories that most play upon my mind are not the most important stories. And an example of that happened in the New York Times. I mean, there are very important stories in the New York Times and everywhere else today. You have well more than a million Gazans moving to the south and then Israel saying, well, now we're going to fight in the south and the Gazans quite rightly say, and where should we go? And there doesn't seem to be a great answer, even though there are maps where Israel is saying uh, from time to time, not here. And if you follow the maps, you have more of a chance to live, but it's a horrid situation, no doubt. And then stories of five premature babies found decomposing at a hospital in Gaza. Just obviously terrible, terrible stuff, plus all the geopolitical questions, and will any funding ever come? That's not the story that caught my eye. The story that caught my eye was about younger Jewish people fighting with their parents about Israel. Kind of niche, although if you think about the readership of the New York Times, I'm sure (laughs) there are many, many people in this category. Let's put it this way. While not everyone who reads the New York Times is a Jewish family where the younger kids fight with the older ones, every Jewish family where the younger kids fight with the older ones has many New York Times readers within it. So to illustrate this story, the main anecdote is the Kornblatt family, Uh, husband Mark, wife Judith. They are, I think, in their 70s. They have moved to Israel, and they have now adult children. One of their children, the daughter, Louisa Kornblatt, is very pro-Palestinian and uses phrase like, Israel is an apartheid state. She says that when she visits her parents in Israel. But not just when she visits her parents in Israel, when she visits her brother Jake in Israel. And Jake is married to Tamar Azinko, 36, an Israeli Jew who moved to Israel from Ethiopia when she was four. And if you look at the picture accompanying the story, yes, she is black. And she says of her sister-in-law calling Israel an apartheid state, she, a black woman, married to a white Israeli man, says, yeah, I don't think that that's the best description. Ms. Asinko says, quote, it's complicated. There isn't black and white here. There's a middle ground. I feel like people who don't live here don't understand the middle ground. So her sister-in-law, perhaps strongly, perhaps, strongly perhaps, sound like Trump. So her sister perhaps in that category. Why would her sister be in that category? Reasons. There are reasons, there's thinking, there's studying. But there's also this description of the background of Louisa Kornblatt. 
Louisa grew up in Madison, that's New Jersey, spent summers at Jewish sleepaway camps, and shared her parents' belief that the safety of the Jewish people depended on the Jewish state. Here's the turn. That began to change when she attended a graduate program in social work at UC Berkeley. Miss Kornblatt, who sometimes uses the pronouns they, them, said classmates and friends challenged her thinking. Now, just as not everyone who reads the New York Times is a Jewish family at each other's throats, I would say not everyone who is a Berkeley graduate student in sociology using they, them pronouns is anti-Israel. But I would say it's a lot of them. I would say of them, meaning in this case, not just Miss Kornblatt, but all the people in that general demographic, I don't know, you're going 90, 95, 99.95% not so pro-Israel, much safer to call the place apartheid and then have to deal with side eye from your black sister-in-law before you get to leave the country and hang out with your Berkeley sociology friends again. On the show today... Donald Trump, does he still got it? Did he ever have it? And I'm not talking about indictments. I'm talking about his ability to speak to a crowd. We'll investigate. But first, as we keep an eye on Israel and Palestine and another eye on Ukraine and Taiwan, we've definitely run out of eyes. But it's also easy to lose track of what's happening in Venezuela. Venezuela has just voted to annex a large chunk of Guyana. Up next, I I bet you didn't know that. Up next, I'm joined by Francisco Toro, a Venezuelan living in Canada. We shall talk about his home country, plus Argentina, and what newly elected President Javier Millet wants to do, and what he really can do. Francisco Toro, up next. Well, we haven't been to South America in a while. Our guide, I think the last time we went to Central America was Francisco Toro. He's a contributing editor of Persuasion, founder of CaracasChronicles.com, and has one of those jobs with which raises more questions than answers, but is content director for the group of 50. I'll just say that. And he has been writing about, wow, a massive referendum that is fascinating, but also possibly meaningless in his native Venezuela. And we're also going to talk about the latest elections in Argentina. Francisco, welcome back to The Gist. Thanks for having me back. So the headline in Persuasion is the forgotten dispute that could ignite a war in South America. But like Faulkner said of the South, the past there is never forgotten. It's not even past. I kind of get the sense that this region of Guyana plays a similar role in the mindset of Venezuelans. Could you take me there? I think so. I mean, it's a really old dispute. Um, the eastern edge of what was then the Spanish Empire starting in the 16th century and the western end of what had been the Dutch Empire in South America way the way, way back then is mostly a jungle region. Nobody really lives there except for a few native people in, in the interior part of the jungle. So the lines that Europeans were drawing on maps in this region all the way back then were always kind of notional and dreamlandish, um, but they've never agreed. Eventually, Venezuela took over from the Spanish Empire, and then the British took over from the Dutch Empire, and then Guyana became an independent country in the 1960s. But all along, the region has re- remained pretty sparsely populated 
And there's never really been an agreement as to where the border lies exactly. So if you need a border uh, and you don't have satellite imaging, you usually rely on a river. What's the river in question? Okay, so there's a couple. The British, <laughs> the Spanish, and then the Venezuelans always call um, claim the Essequibo River to be the eastern end of, of the Venezuelan territory, but that is not recognized by international law. There was actually an arbitration panel called in 1899 to try to settle the dispute about where the border was. The panel, which included two U.S. Supreme Court justices. Uh, voted five to zero to set the border where international maps now show it, which is 170 miles west of the Essequibo River. So most of the territory in question, though, under international law, uh, is is part of Guyana and actually makes up about two thirds of the territory of, of Guyana. So look at a map, look at Guyana, small country, but cut it in half, cede the west to Venezuela. That's what Venezuela is claiming and not just claiming they put this to a vote. What was behind that? That's right. Look, the Venezuelan government is toxically unpopular, as you'd imagine, because they're both thuggish and incompetent and have run the country into the ground to such an extent that something like 7 million out of 30 million Venezuelans have had to leave, many of whom have ended up in the U.S., and you'll have seen them if you live in a big city in the U.S. Um, So this government is uh, desperate for anything to unite the country behind them, and it turns out that you know, the mythology about the Essequibo territory having been stolen from Venezuela has always sold really well in Venezuela. It just like gives us this little nationalist uh, dopamine hit. And so they've they've run to that. They know that this is one thing that unites Venezuela. So they wanted to have this, this referendum to show that they could mobilize people to the polls. Uh, something like 95%, according to the government, which is never trustworthy, but this time I do trust them. Something like 95% of Venezuelans uh, voted to say, yes, this territory belongs to us and we should annex it and we should go and take it. Um, which doesn't mean that we will because the Venezuelan military is not really able to do that. Right. So it's a non-binding vote of a notional border of a implausible territorial aspiration. So why do it? <laughs> just, just as a distraction? There's part distraction. Part of it is the fact that uh, it turns out that offshore in this disputed territory that's really part of Guyana, there's a bunch of oil and there's a bunch of very valuable oil because it's high grade oil. It's not too difficult to extract. And uh, the Maduro regime would dearly love to get its hands on it. So that's part of it. I don't think they think they can really get the oil, but what they can do is they can sabotage Guyana's attempts to get at the oil because it's very difficult for foreign oil companies to to wade into this dispute. It raises the risk of it for, for foreign oil companies. Okay, so just by muddying up the whoever has claim to it, it might be enough, they think, to prevent Guyana's aspirations to get the oil, possibly. That's one part of it. Uh, but look, when you're dealing with a regime like Maduro's, you can never be entirely sure. I have a personal conspiracy theory, which is possibly wrong, but not any wronger than any of the other ones, that what's really behind this is that in the referendum they had, they claimed 10 million Venezuelans voted and 95% voted in favor of this annexation. Journalists who went to polling stations all through the day saw barely anyone voting. And we know what it looks like when 10 million Venezuelans vote. There are lines and there were no lines. So 
possibly what is going on here is the Maduro regime flexing their ability to steal elections quite openly as a way of demobilizing and discouraging the opposition and showing them, you know what, we own the election infrastructure. We can say whatever we want. There's nothing you can do about it. Are the Guyanese up in arms about this? The Guyanese are very concerned. I mean, this for Guyana has been a little bit like the Chinese claim has been over Taiwanese people over the last very many years, this constant murmur, this rumble, this concern. But obviously, they're more concerned now. They have a very small army, but they are mobilizing it. Mostly what they're doing is they're going through international institutions, talking to the United Nations, trying to bring it to the Security Council. Because in terms of international law, this is not really... This is not really a difficult dispute. The territory is legally Guyanese. There is a claim in the International Court of Justice that needs to go through the International Court of Justice in The Hague, which the Guyanese will clearly win because the treaties around it are now quite clear. So what they want to do is they want to mobilize international public opinion. And eventually, if the worst comes to to the worst and, and Maduro really loses his mind and tries some kind of military intervention, um... You know, this this would end up probably drawing the U.S. in because nobody else really has the, the capacity to do anything about it. How many people live in this region? I don't have an exact number, but less than 10,000. It's very sparsely populated. Less than 10,000. Yeah, no, the, Guyana is mostly to the east of that, between the Essequibo River and the Demerara River, where the sugar comes from. Yeah. And uh, you did mention or you did analogize it a little bit to China and territorial claims of Taiwan. We can think of other geopolitical analogies. But the difference with that one, even with Russia and Crimea, is the Russians and the Chinese are strong, have robust militaries, and the Venezuelans, you know, I understand compared to Guyana, they might have the advantage, but they are a basket case. Are they not even militarily? Well, look, the Venezuelan military is actually a very high-performance organization at the things that it cares about. It's just that the things that it cares about is trafficking cocaine Mm. and precious metals, which is what they spend their time doing. It's become very profitable. The reason the regime in Venezuela is supported by the military as strongly as it is is that Maduro has given them free reign to run all these illegal businesses. From a Venezuelan general's point of view, the whole concept of stopping this incredibly lucrative trade to go fight a war in a jungle where there are no roads and you have, you have no ability to fight there, you don't even know who you're attacking because no, no people live there, is very difficult to imagine. But in a dictatorship, things don't need to make sense in order to happen. Right. I love the argument, though. Guys, think of the opportunity costs of engaging in this uh, folly of a territorial claim. We've got our cocaine to harvest. That's how it is. Yeah. Let's go south, way south. Argentina, uh, a populist, shall we say, which is a phrase, I don't know how much light it sheds, has been elected. uh, The economist Javier Millet, you know, as a Westerner, it's very hard to try to assess what his, well, it's a couple-pronged question, what, what his ideas are, what his policies will be, what's the possibility of his actually turning ideas into policy, because so often the specter of the orange-haired American, Donald Trump, wafts over this entire question. It's hard to actually see through that miasma. So tell me, is Millet Trumpish or something else? 
I think that's just a wrong frame. Um, what Millet is, is a libertarian. He is a doctrinaire, orthodox libertarian of the kind you probably met in college. Uh, and it's just <laughs> that most people like grow out of that, and he hasn't grown out of that. Now, in his defense, I will say that if you want to be a libertarian, there are a few better places to be a libertarian than Argentina, because Argentina is a place that really does have a state that has screwed up the country in the way that libertarians usually think states will screw up every country eventually. But that's really happened. there. Argentina used to be a developed country. You know, before the First World War, Argentina had a higher per capita GDP than France or Germany. It had 80% of the per capita GDP of the United States. Now it's down to 30. Now, Argentina is the only country I can think of and that economic historians can think of that has actually traversed the span between developed and developing countries backwards. Yeah. So the state is very large, very intrusive, very corrupt, and very incompetent, and Argentinians are sick of it. So um, never before, as far as I'm aware, had an orthodox doctrinaire libertarian been elected by a landslide to lead a country. But this happened in Argentina, not, not necessarily because Argentinians all became doctrinaire libertarians all of a sudden, but because uh, Millet, Millet's argument that the problem with Argentina is that the state is out of control uh, sounds true in Argentina in a way that it wouldn't sound true anywhere else. Yeah, he is also, he's not a left-wing libertarian. He is not, he does not look at uh, social policy and say, oh yes, everyone should be free to identify however they wish to identify. And uh, he he has, he's been strongly critical, I think, of some identity politics as they played out in Argentina. Sure, but these things are throwaway lines in yeah. one or two speeches or or TV shows. He used to be he used to host a TV show on Argentinian TV, and you have a lot of airtime to fill. So you say things. This is not really what the public conversation in Argentina is about. This is something that I think American commentators impose on this because everything has to be about the U.S. Right, right. Tucker Carlson Carlson went down and did an interview, and all of a sudden he was talking about Donald Trump and LGBT, and that is not dominating. Clearly, if you press him on these subjects, he takes a view that in North America would be coded as right wing. Yeah, but in in Argentina, the conversation is not about that. The conversation is: Are we going to keep the peso, or are we going to ditch it and go to the U.S. dollar? Are we going to slash government spending by about half and shut down half of the ministries? This is what they're talking about. And that right, is- right, pulling out of a, uh, a what was seen as a promising trade group, um, all the you know withdrawing from different international treaties. The dollarization uh, argument or debate will be or decision will be really fundamental to the future of that economy. Doesn't matter what how you define uh, the Q and LGBTQ. Right, right. Yeah. This because look in Argentina you have inflation at over hundred percent a year. You have the the peso losing losing value at an incredible rate. You have forty percent of people in poverty right now. These are the questions that are going to obsess people, and and Millet. Whether it's going to work or not has a worked out plan for what he's going to do and how he's going to approach this. And um, it's dangerous in some ways because a lot of people have been relying on these state subsidies to make their their ends meet uh, and to make their family budgets work. 
But on the other hand, it's it's at least a plan which Argentinians haven't really had um, for some time. So it's not crazy to me that this could yeah. work. And I think people are um, dismissing Millet's chances of success a little. Well, that yeah, that's another question I have. His personality is, depending on how you look at it, somewhere between quirky and bonkers. But there might be reasons, calculated reasons for that, or there might be the uh, excuse of, oh, no, there are calculated reasons for this just to cover up uh, a certain fundamental wackiness. There's also the fact that he doesn't really have uh, parliament, uh, the votes in parliament to get much done, but he has this popular support in the presidential election. Can he, either assessing the politics of Argentina or just his own personal wherewithal, do you think he really can push through his most ambitious proposals? Well, the most ambitious proposals, certainly not because he doesn't have the votes in Congress. But I think that the question, the bigger question is, is he can, can he stay sane enough and non-wacky enough for long enough to make anything work? Yes. And, I, and we're going to find out because... Right. But you know, what do you think? When you look at him, do you say, wow, very problematically bonkers? Or do you say, oh, yeah, I see a little cunning there? Look, after the first round, when he came in second, he very quickly shifted. Okay. He shifted to a much more moderate tone. He started to build bridges with the more traditional conservative sectors in, in Argentina that are not yes. bonkers. That shows an agility that hadn't been there before. And remember, he was a TV personality. Uh, anybody who's on media, I bet Mike Pesca, Mike Pesca around the kitchen table is slightly different than Mike Pesca on this show, right? Yes. So the question is, is the TV personality going to be the dude who governs or is there going to be a different and more moderate guy behind him? The early signs, he's picked a, a team uh, for his cabinet that is made up of experienced, sane people. Um but but there's no question that his underlying views, which he's never made a secret of, are very radically libertarian. Yes. And I do have to say around the kitchen table, there is punishment, strict punishment for anyone who puns. That is that is a Pesca family rule and perhaps, you know, slightly different from what you hear on the show. Francisco Toro is a contributing editor at Persuasion, founder of CaracasChronicles.com, and he's the content director for the Group of 50 Francisco, thank you again so much. Thanks so much. I hope to do it again. And now the spiel. I read a lot of press criticism about the media not calling Trump what he is, a dictator. Salon headline, Trump is hiding his fascist plans in plain sight. Klaxon-like NYU professor Jay Rosen says the media should not cover polls, just Trump's authoritarianism. Margaret Sullivan of The Guardian, the public doesn't understand the risks of a Trump victory. That's the media's fault. Sullivan and Rosen then linked approvingly, praised Robert Kagan's recent column in The Washington Post, a Trump dictatorship is increasingly inevitable. We should stop pretending. Well, they should be thrilled that a major TV network clearly labeled Trump a dictator. In fact, it was the highest rated cable news network on one of the highest rated shows. It was the Sean Hannity Show on Fox, 
And the person saying Trump was a dictator was Trump. I want to go back to, to this one issue, though, because the media has been focused on this and attacking you yeah. under no circumstances. You are promising America tonight. You would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Yeah. Except Look, what? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill, that's drill, not a, that's, drill. That's not, no, no. that's not retribution. I got I'm going to be... I'm going to be, you know, he keeps, we love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. Dictator for a day. What's that mean? It's threatening, but it's also incoherent. Trump's enemies hate it. Trump's acolytes love it. Just another example of Trump rhetoric causing the kind of chaos that it was meant to cause in its utterance and also in the opposition to it. Here's another one that we talked about a couple days ago. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. It was in the last minute of an almost two-hour speech, full of bellicosity and calumny. It became the casus belli or the bone mo of the moment, depending on your pronunciation of Latin or French. But we've also heard that Trump is losing it. That while Joe Biden might seem doddering, Trump's the real doddering one. Jonathan Carl said it a few weeks ago on ABC's This Week. People have not been paying attention to what Trump has become. Trump, since he left the White House, and this is really the theme of my book, uh, has become more detached from reality than he ever was even in the White House. If you think of where we were in January of 2021, uh, that's the starting point for where a Trump presidency would be next time around. So I think he's had largely, believe it or not, a, a free ride. Again, the criminal cases we know about, but what he's thinking, what he's doing. He, he had a, a, a speech just the other day in Texas where he referred to the people that are in prison because they attacked the U.S. Capitol and beat up police officers. He called them not prisoners, but hostages. Um, he, you know, we talk about Biden's age a lot. Biden's negatives are on television every day. You see them. Um, Trump, is, Trump has become also increasingly uh, confused about things. He, sometimes he thinks that he lost uh, to Obama in the last election. He confuses uh, basic facts, uh, says some rather strange things, but there isn't much attention paid. As we get closer to these primaries, we'll see where not just Trump is based on these criminal cases, but where he is now as a, as a human being. And Alyssa Farah said it on CNN's State of the Union this Sunday. I was watching some of the clips from Trump's visit to Iowa, and I'm stunned having spent a lot of time with him in 2020 and years before. He is slowing down. There is a, there's a lack of sharpness in what he's saying um, and a lack of kind of clarity. There's another clip where he basically says he's going to overturn Obamacare, but then also says that he fixed it. Just complete inconsistencies. And for Republicans, our strongest case against Joe Biden is, you know, the age and the decline that some of us have seen. And if I'm being honest, head to head, I'm not sure which is struggling more. Well, is it true? A just-vestigation, all right, I couldn't sleep the other night and watch a long speech. A just-vestigation found out. So I watched the entire one-hour, 49-minute speech in which Trump talked about vermin. I was trying to see how much he has fallen off since he was that silver-tongued, almost literal devil back in 2016 and while president. And I am here to report that the speech was often off-topic, crude, unpresidential, quite often rambling. In other words, Trump's verbal presentation has not changed one bit. He was, at times, self-aggrandizing, at times, self-effacing. 
in this one anecdote, he is both self-effacing and self-aggrandizing. I went to Walter Reed on numerous occasions because to see the soldiers. And I've never been, uh, I would always say I could have never been a doctor because I can't handle that stuff, right? You know, I'm not, if I see somebody with a little finger, little blood guy, say, oh. And yet I was able to handle it so incredibly well. Here was his sensitive description of the soldiers he encountered. People were obliterated. 38, they don't talk about them. They never talk about them. Uh, missing legs, one case, two legs, one arm, and a half an arm. Ahead. The crowd was with him even as he complained about their very presence ruining his day. We have a little time. You know, this is a nice day. You, you screwed up my whole day by putting this in the middle of the day. So you can't do anything in the morning because you don't have time. You can't do anything in the evening. Although tonight, I'm going to the UFC fight at Madison Square Garden. Dana White. You know Dana White? The great Dana White. There's a guy I'd like to make my defense chief. I wouldn't call him my defense chief. I'd call him my offense chief. He'd be my offense chief. He just riffed that offense. That was right off the dome. In fact, he used this crowd as he has others in the past in his 2016 run. He used them as a sounding board. He is said to have gotten the idea for tagging his unrealized plan to build a border wall with the phrase, and the Mexicans are going to pay for it, because crowds would go nuts upon hearing that phrase. In this speech, he channeled his inner Frank Luntz as he focus-tested killing drug dealers. Who would be in favor of the death penalty to solve? And and just out of care, who would not be in favor? Because it's harsh. Who would not be? Okay, I can understand it. Look, I can understand But I see one hand out of thousands of people. Uh, Are you a liberal? Uh, No. Okay, I understand it. It's it's a tough, it's a tough thing. And it, and you know what happens? They can get it wrong, too. They can get it wrong, and they can abuse the system. I've been abused. A lot of the people in this room have been abused. They can abuse, they can abuse the system. Uh, but I see one hand. Okay, so let me do that again, because that's what... Who would be opposed to bringing in the death penalty? He begins pointing to individual members of the crowd. Seriously, don't be afraid. Nobody's going to... We're not, we're not the Democrats where they're going to put you in jail because you speak up. Who would be opposed? I see three hands. I see one hand of a person down there. She's going like this, meaning she doesn't know, right? She she sort of likes it, but it's a big step. So I see three and a half, okay? Then he turns around to the crowd and asks them, the people behind him, do we want to kill the drug dealers? And one older guy in a brimmed hat shoots his hand up in the air. He really doesn't want to kill drug dealers. I was wondering about this guy. Trump seemed less curious. I'm not sure if it was pure shtick or a genuine connection with the audience, caring what they thought. I bet if a lot of people booed, he'd drop that from his policy platform. But I'll tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't Trump losing it. It wasn't Trump being any different from when he polled crowds on abortion and putting women who had abortions in jail. I saw him doing that at town hall events while he was running for president and president. Trump was often indulgent. He was often off topic quite frequently, but that's Trump. Also, I picked up an improvement or an addition to his old shtick, he now gets to tell tales of being president. He told an anecdote of Air Force One landing on instruments in Afghanistan. 
It was a proper anecdote. Sure, everyone in it was from central casting. They all said, sir, a lot. But he counted down the descent and it built tension. He modulated volume. He did voices. 1,000. That means 1,000 feet. 1,000 feet is very, a big plane like that, that's very low. That's like a 10-story building. That's not very high, right? And we're flying over like desert. I hear 1,900 800, you know, as it's going down, it's going down like this, and everything's fine, it's going down, but I don't see any lights. You know, usually you see lights, you see LaGuardia, you see Kennedy Airport, and you see lights in the distance, and you think, isn't that a beautiful sight? Well, we're going down, and I didn't see a damn light. He continues on, landing without lights in Afghanistan, wondering if they'd make it. And yeah, of course they do. He's there talking to the crowd. And the pilots are heroes, and the tech is state-of-the-art. And then Trump delivers the tag. It's a miracle. And you know what I said? I said to my staff right after I landed, am I allowed, because I showed great bravery, I thought, am I allowed to give myself the Congressional Medal of Honor? I want to give myself because I showed great bravery. You can hear the big laugh. Trump then turns it around into a media critique saying, they're going to think I'm serious. And the crowd delights in this. Oh, don't they know it? He has created a bond. Sad to say he's good at this. If you close your eyes, there would be long stretches indistinguishable from the Trump impression James Austin Johnson does on SNL. But a couple of things. James Austin Johnson landed that spot on SNL because he crafted an impression based on how Trump sounded during his presidency. The fact that he sounds like James Austin Johnson shows that he sounds like he did during his presidency. Also, James Austin Johnson is incredibly entertaining. Trump lost me at stolen election and death penalty for drug dealers. Well, basically, he lost me at everything. But to tell us that his verbal acuity has fallen off in a similar way or to a greater degree than Joe Biden? I mean, I guess it's just the idea that if you insult Trump on most Sunday shows, everyone just chuckles knowingly. I do not know what these commentators are listening to. Maybe the better question is, why are we listening to them? The Gist is produced by Corey Wara with Joel Patterson, the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects. Last night was a very special project, and she ably oversaw all late-breaking additions, all preparations. A fantastic job out of Michelle. Some people said I did well, too. We're going to be cutting up segments from that and playing it for you or for Pesca Plus subscribers, and I think we're even going to do a video. If you're interested in advertising with us, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oopru, jeepru, dooperu, and thanks for listening. We don't like food to apologize, do we? Like that awful Captain Crunch. <laughs> he was very rude to me at Count Chocula's 500th birthday. <laughs> you know, he was doing oops all berries. They say oops all berries now. You're hearing it all the time, oops all berries. <laughs> like it's a bad thing, okay? Why say oops? We love our crunch berries. Our berries are beautiful. <laughs> berries are very beautiful. I've heard we have the best berries, right, Mr. Bunny? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs>